Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, which was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today, who I'm excited to be talking to, is recording from lands that were home to the Nez Perce and the Shoshone Bannock people. My guest today, who I'm delighted to have on, is Jared Devereaux, who is recently paroled from the Idaho Department of Corrections after serving five years of a 20-year sentence for grand theft embezzlement. Prior to his incarceration, Jared was grinding away at a fine arts doctorate at Texas Tech. He previously received a master's in theater from Idaho State and his bachelor's from BYU. Jared is the father to six amazing children. And in addition to enjoying his new release from prison, Jared is looking forward to publishing his prison memoir, Devils, Fires, Thieves, and Liars, Groomed for the American Gulag. Jared, thanks for so much for taking the time and being in conversation today. Absolutely, thank you for having me. This is, uh, this is fantastic. Grateful to be speaking to you from uh, the beautiful Shoshone Bannock area, southeast southeast Idaho, coming at you. Perfect. So I I want to start off with kind of a broad question and see see where you take it because you were telling me that throughout your time in prison you learned a lot about the world around you and about how society is structured. You told me especially that incarceration gave you a new perspective on race and class and the relationship between those. So broadly, what did you learn? How did you learn that? Oh yeah, yeah, fantastic question, thank you. To put this in context, some of my upbringing I think is kind of appropriate. I grew up in, in the Seattle area and you know, traditionally uh, people consider that area pretty liberal and open-minded and I, I would agree with that statement. And so school, and growing up, you see a lot of different races, a lot of different people. Seattle's definitely a, kind of a melting pot area, I would say, and, and in a heyday, a more what I would call blue collar, you know, class people, just hard, you know, longshoremen, loggers, all three branches of the military, things like that. While I was in a rural, grew up in a rural area outside of Seattle, while it wasn't, you know, strange or different to see different races, you know, I, I didn't become super aware of it. Until, yeah, until, you know, uh, smack dab in the middle of, boy, Ada County Jail in Boise, Idaho. I was terrified. Never, never So I went, you know, straight from uh, father of six kids running, you know, business, former, uh, you know, graduate student with a fellowship, things like that, straight to, uh, you know, a hardcore prison sentence. So uh, anyway, I, I, you know, first little bit you do in jail before they send you to prison. My, my side bunkie, so prison terminology, my side bunkie. Uh, was African-American. He just was really great, really compassionate, really kind to me. And that didn't alarm me at all. I needed some help. I clearly probably had, uh, you know, eyes as big as saucers and was just terrified, wasn't sleeping, that sort of thing. But I could tell he was kind of guarded and didn't necessarily, you know, wasn't particularly talkative while, you know, when the lights would go out, you know, hey, uh, side bunk me, you know, and kind of give me, give me the breakdown on how things in the uh, in the dorms and the things like that would work. It's like being in junior high, all, high school all over again. So, you know, food comes in, you grab your tray and you're, you're in this, this tier area. You grab this horse they call food and you turn around and you look at all these bolted steel tables. And all of a sudden you're just, you know, gripped by the fact, oh, shit, where am I going to sit? 
right? Junior high all over again. In an, uh, and unlike in, in junior high where, you know, okay, I'm wearing a skateboard t-shirt. So I'll look around, I'll find the other kids with the skateboard t-shirts and I'll go, you know, I'll head that direction. You know, everyone's wearing jail scrubs, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, orange with these hideous Ronald McDonald stripes. So then it becomes immediately uh, obvious that at all these bolted down steel tables, you know, people are sitting by, by race. And so, you know, you have, you know, Hispanics that, and, and there's lots of uh, Mexican immigrants and uh, Hispanic people in, in the Idaho area. They come here to work, you know, in agriculture and, and, and other stuff. You know, they're clearly in one area and then they're not a, a huge African-American population. No surprise there for Idaho, but they're clearly in one area. And then, but then even amongst the whites, I, the first time I ever saw, I saw a swastika tattoo, right, you know, in, mm-hmm. in an Idaho jail. And I, I thought, you know, is that supposed to be ironic? I just wasn't exposed to things like that in my, you know, latte sipping, uber liberal Seattle upbringing. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, I think that was the first the first thing of like, oh, crap. So to, to rewind a little bit, the thing is, I didn't feel particularly connected or drawn towards any of these particular areas, but I needed to sit somewhere. So I think that those first few days, I just, I completely just checked out and just went back to my bunk and sat there and, you know, quietly, whatever, which sometimes it's frowned on. And I, I won't get, get into that because people, you know, you want to keep your bunk area clean and clear. And these were, these are some of the parts of instruction you get as you get started in incarceration about what's, you know, universally accepted and not accepted. Well, uh, as a week went by and two weeks went by, and I felt really comfortable with my side bunkie. I went and sat at his table and he didn't really, you know, his, his eyes kind of, eyebrows, eyebrows kind of went up, but he didn't really say uh, one thing or another per se. He just, he was very polite. And the other the men that were there were, you know, were cool with whatever. And I just, you know, I probably yammered away and I'm, I'm fine with uh, chatting up anybody, but uh, in the bathroom, like later on that evening, these two, uh, you know, white kids come up to me and they're like, Hey, can't be sitting with and you know they, he used the the n word and I kind of looked at him quizzically it didn't it didn't it didn't necessarily register with me and I'm like what and he the guy repeated himself with his buddy and I'm like are you are you serious and then you know one of them said something to the the effect of like uh, well yeah you know those those guys you know they, they'll they'll steal your crap and they'll do this and do that or whatever you know, which I considered you know like stupid and naive things to say what was hilarious about this particular scenario so these two guys are saying that my side monkey is going to steal all my crap. And those, those two skinny dorks, like two weeks later, got their ass kicked and had to leave the tier because they were stealing shit, right? So stealing people's food and stuff like that. It's funny how that works. But that, it, it kind of shook me a little bit because these guys were kind of trying to intimidate me. So uh, I was really upset by it. And I wandered back to my side monkey. I'll call him Jay, just because uh, I didn't ask permission to use his name. So I asked Jay, I'm like, hey, I just had this thing in the bathroom like is this is this for serious uh, and jay just kind of took a deep breath and said how i are here you know and, and he, then he kind of broke down for me he's like look i've done i did uh five six years of, of fed time and yeah you know in prison it is customary for things to break down along racial lines and that's just the way that it's done the way it's always done he's like here in jail he said it can be a bit of a hodgepodge and in you know idaho is just depending on whether or not guys want to get violent he's like you know, you may or may not have a problem. He's like, I don't have a problem with you sitting at my table. I think you're a good dude. And I don't know that anybody's going to, quote unquote, do anything about it. And am I doing anything about it? You know, he's like, well, you know, 
smash you out, right? Is a prison term. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, send three or four guys to, you know, kick my ribs in. Fast forwarding to the end of the story, I never did get my ribs kicked in, and I continued to grow a, a good friendship with with Jay. Uh, but that's not particularly common, and I was, you know, left alone, which was kind of odd too. And there's there's other reasons for that. Some of it just had to do with just my attitude towards it. I just I I'm, I'm not comfortable being a racist. It just it's bizarre to me. I want to speak to whoever I want to speak to, right? This was my first, you know, foray into, wait a second, like, this is how things are done. And it's totally, you know, it's totally acceptable. It's, it, it's strange to, uh, to question it, right? Going from Ada County Jail, uh, being sentenced and then sent to prison. Yeah, your, your first couple of days in prison, it's, you look around and that's the way it is. You know, and it's just by, it's by color, right? And mm-hmm. you know, nobody questions it because it's just the way it's done and the way it's always been done. That's the explanation, right? <laughs> it's probably the explanation for a lot of, a lot of things in this world, like you know, people never go, well, but why? Yeah, an, an important question. So, so following up a little bit, I mean, you said you sort of di- didn't want to participate because you didn't want to participate in that racism, to use your words. So can you explain or talk a little bit how this was more than segregation, but this was actually racism or white supremacy? Or w- what are the connections between this form of segregation and racism? There is that there is that segregation, and then even the officers themselves, excuse me, the correctional officers, you know, they, even they are already kind of primed to that's the way things, you know, are as well. Even when they're doing cell assignments and bunk assignments, that sort of thing. It first of that, there's there are times where you might have cellmates or things like that from a different race, but predominantly they, it's like everyone's participating in this particular activity. So so there's the segregation part, but then but then when I say racism, like it, it really is. And you'll get the sentiment and again, the first time I ever saw a swastika t- tattoo and I saw more than one, lots of, and then you hear conversations and sentiments of that, like, you know, that, the, you know, well, the blacks do this and the Mexicans do that and, you know, fill in the blank, fill in whatever, you know, negative othering, right? I mean, this is a, this mm-hmm. is a grand old tri- tribalism type thing. Those people over there are a threat to us. You know, they are going to, you know, take our things. They're a, physical or violent threat, right? Prison is a, is a survival atmosphere. So things of value are scarce. And then you're ultimately your safety. Everything poses a threat. To me, it just exacerbates the racist thing because there's that, again, it's the othering thing. You look across the way, well, that person over there, that person with different skin color than me is a danger to me and my stuff and my safety and my well-being. well-being. And you'll, and you'll, even though in my experience, I never saw that there was any empirical evidence that would say that that's the case. And oftentimes when I was jammed up about these sorts of things from, from uh, other inmates and predominantly whites who were like, you know, well, Jerry, what are you doing? Served on a fire crew for a brief period of time. And there was two black guys in there and, you know, it becomes kind of a joke and, and, and sadly, you know, the, some people can't laugh at themselves, but so what I'm about to say might be uh considered highly offensive but i'm just going to roll with it because it was funny but you know they they were our token blacks right you know here on the fire crew everybody's white but we have to have a couple black guys you have to have a couple mexicans and it's, it's kind of funny similarly i i gravitated towards some of these guys they're just they're just great dudes and a lot of times they don't have a lot of friends or they're, they're, they are just to use the word in its proper term they are the minority there's a bunch of whites and then there's a couple of those. but same thing i i remember uh, i got were invited to some religious group, just all white guys, and some of the 
you know, stuff that they're talking about is leaning towards, you know, Aryan type beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and so, I, you know, I'm in my typical fashion, because I'm kind of a wise ass. I'm just like, okay, well, is it cool if I bring my friend Jason? They're like, yeah, yeah, you can bring Jason. I said, okay, I'll, he's right over there. I'll go grab him. And, you know, Jason's black, you know, so I would go around and wandering over there. Go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You know, I'm like, oh, wait, you know, just, I'm like, I thought this is, oh, wait, this is a religious meeting, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it's a religious meeting. Okay, well, didn't, you know, I mean, God made Jason and he made me. I mean, we're all, you know, men who are, you know, and so the dude tried to explain to me in rather delicate language that, you know, and I'm like, look, man, when Jason can come, I'll come. But otherwise, I'm cool where I'm at, right? Sure. So, uh, so yeah, again, uh, it's funny because I think when I think about the the world in general, I just think our opinions about anything, whether it's an opinion about a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, just this othering idea. And, and in this, this, the subject of race, it's kind of the same thing. People have no direct experience with anything negative. They just have whatever this narrative is, right? Mm-hmm. And in prison... You know, because some white dudes and some black dudes rumbled a while back or this uh, Hispanic gang and that, you know, like, and it's, again, these become like, you know, mythical stories. No one ever saw it or experienced it, but now, you know, it's, it's, it becomes, uh, you know, gospel. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. It's so important how myths or ideas no matter how divorced from reality uh come to dominate what reality then becomes so are, are is this racism and tribalism learned within prison is it something that prison reflects from the outside world and, and sort of leading i guess to the bigger question because you've argued elsewhere that you can't eradicate white supremacy you can't end white supremacy without ending mass incarceration. So so can you sort of bridge this racism within prisons and this larger system of the connection between white supremacy and mass incarceration? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll attempt to. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is my particular uh, belief, is that I, I don't believe you can conquer uh, white supremacy or or deal with racism appropriately in this country until you deal with mass incarceration. It's, just, it's a lot to unpack, right? This is why I love, this is why I love your, your podcast, right? Because these things are so complex. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm a theater guy, right? And so there's that question that comes up like, okay, well, does one reflect the other? You know, is, is uh, we go see a play and, and perhaps it's dealing with uh, issues of race or sexuality or whatever. Okay, well, is, is this just artifice? Is this some creation? And, and so and people see it and go, oh, so they take it home and they start mimicking what they see on stage. Or, you know, or is what, what's put on stage, is that a reflection of real life? And, and sometimes it's, I think it's both. Just like we talked about a moment ago, sometimes, you know, stories, uh, particularly, you know, the, the narratives behind things become so powerful that they have a, an, an, some sort of inertia, right? to where you know people just automatically you know believe these stories well when it comes to racism and white supremacy in 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 prison we we can't ignore there's just just the 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 plain fact we have incarcerated in this country just a nauseating amount of of african-americans right i mean they've been profiled now i see like so in the state of idaho i feel like i mean there's just a disproportionate amount of hispanics 
and you know many of these people have crossed the border and we know like in a in a super red republican state like we have here i mean that's just you know a cardinal sin which is kind of hilarious to me because many of these you know card carrying republican republicans and agriculture businessmen are hiring in mass these unskilled immigrant laborers but yet at the same time out of you know it's out of one side of their face you say this and at one side it's like well, well, well which is it so they they bring this class up and, and I'll, I do use that word. It's like a slave class, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to use them to uh, fill our prisons and we'll use them to do our super cheap labor. And then whatever social ills we have, we'll just, we'll just blame it on them, right? It's all their fault. This uh, idea of white supremacy, I really think helps perpetuate this particular narrative. And then what's hilarious to me is you get in a prison setting and you have a lot of uneducated, poor whites that in my opinion, don't recognize the fact that they're equally as manipulated and incarcerated for, you know, all these barriers to entry into prison anymore is is super low. You can pretty much do about just about anything and and wind up with a prison sentence these days. I, I, I think I'm a good example of that. You got guys that have, uh, you know, three strikes are out. They're in for DUIs, right? And they get into the the system and man, they might be doing three, five, 10 years, you know, if it's their third or fourth time in a period of time drinking, right? And what's funny is they'll still, within a, the uh, the population, look at other minorities and go, well, they're that guy over there. He's the reason why, you know, the world's falling apart. And it's like, well, wait a second. Aren't you serving a prison sentence, like shoulder to shoulder with this, with this guy? I mean, you're just, you're the same poor bastard that they are, right? I mean, you guys were all in for the same charges, you know, uh, whatever they might be, but it's it's that, blindness to see that perhaps we might share more than we we think we might and i think mm-hmm. in that case it's poverty it's you know lower middle class you know blue collar we can't afford proper medical care so at the end of the day when i'm you know done swinging my hammer or uh, carrying concrete forms and my joints ache and that sort of thing well you know in the state of idaho uh, marijuana is still illegal you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I got some weed that I bought from across the border or I'm going to head to the bar and uh, I'll pop a few, uh, you know, opiates, drink a few things. And, oh, shit, I got my swerve on. Next thing you know, I got a prison sentence. Right. That sort of thing. Because, well, these, these aren't people with comprehensive medical care. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to numb the pain. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll do that. I realize I'm kind of meandering here. Again, it's, it's just funny. You get into that that prison setting and there's just this naivety behind really driving social ills. Maybe you maybe you have the same exact charges as the guys across the way. You have a lot of young young men, particularly in this state. Uh, they have mandatory minimums here for uh, methamphetamine and uh, you know opiate possession. The amounts are really low. You don't have to be have that much on your person, and you can consider be considered someone who's trafficking, especially for if you're a you know a young white kid who's got hooked on opiates for you know whatever reason. Whether you took them out of your parents' medicine cabinet or you got prescribed them because you had a knee issue from football, whatever. Well, you might be sitting at a steel table across the way from Hispanic people that, you know, got caught trafficking opiates because they brought it across the border, whatever it is. But anyway, but you, you fail to see that you're both there for the same crap because all you see is that that guy's a different color than I am and he's a problem. And you just accept it. It's just the way things are. And to me, when I see this over and over and over again, I go, okay, well, how are we going to fix this problem of, of racism or white supremacy when even in the midst of, of the crap, even in the midst of prison, where technically I would think we're all should be equal, we're all in the eyes of 
the government of, uh, in my case, the state of Idaho, we're all pieces of shit. There's still this idea that we're going to segregate ourselves. Those guys over there are worse than me. And it makes no sense. I realize that's kind of a meandering way to talk about it, but uh, it's, it's definitely like that. I just don't see how we escape it while we continue to just throw people in mass into prison. And, you know, we have an incarcerated number, you know, in, in the millions nationwide that just continues to perpetuate this idea and just swallow it whole hog. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was meandering. I think you added an important component to my question that, that I absolutely missed. I mean, I asked about the connection between racism or white supremacy and mass incarceration, but you added this fundamental issue of capitalism as well. And that a lot of the uh, examples you mentioned are crimes of poverty or, or failures of a social system to provide healthcare, to provide adequate wages, to provide dignity, all of these important things that lead then to mass incarceration, that lead then to these hierarchies or this, this competitive nature. Yeah, it's exactly that. The, the, the crimes of poverty or poverty itself. And this is something that, you know, in a pre-production in our conversation we've had, there's always kind of existed this sentiment that like, okay, well, you know, amongst whites, okay, well, I'm, I'm poor, at least I'm poor and white, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's funny because I see that, while I haven't heard that exact sentence, you get sentiments like that, you know, quite a bit. And it's, and it's really funny to me because poverty's poverty. If you're struggling for food, if you're struggling for medical care, if you're struggling for foothold, and, you know, there are generations of, of whites in this country that have struggled, earned by the sweat of their brow and blood, that sort of thing. You know, they never necessarily complain, but uh, I definitely think if they were to uh, surrender their Republican card, they might realize that, oh, wait a second, I can really use some health care, right? But what's funny is those card carrying, they say things like, okay, well, oh, universal health care? Who's going to pay for that? Well, what's funny is nobody ever goes, oh, like in the state of Idaho, we're going to spend 25, 24, 25 million dollars to send a bunch of guys to private prison. Who's going to pay for that? Like it all costs money. Mother like, you know, are we going to spend the money on, on putting more people in prison? Or perhaps instead of going searching for opiates or for, you know, a handful of Xanax and a Coors Light that there's maybe, I don't know, proper medical care. So some of these things just seem like springboards and into these, you know, crimes of poverty. It's, uh, it was it George Bernard Shaw said that, you know, the, that God's always been particularly hard on the poor. I would agree, still continue to agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what color you are. If you are struggling economically in this country, you are most likely going to find yourself in a, in a jail or prison at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And because poverty has been criminalized. But, but you make such an important point there about these choices of where the state decides to spend money. And it, and it, it sort of changes, I guess, it at least changed my perspective when I started looking at state budgets, at organizational budgets as moral documents. They're proclamations of moral priorities. And if we are going to prioritize right. spending money on private prisons or military or policing or whatever it may be, as opposed to healthcare, that is a that is a statement that the state is making, ethical and a material statement. And and with that being said, then because I know you spent time in a private prison, I kind of want to ask about because private prisons have been have taken a lot of heat, I think rightfully, as from from some activists saying we need to close down private prisons. 
is that the answer? Does the state not profit? I guess the, the question I'm asking is, should we be concerned privately with quote unquote for-profit prisons or are all prisons for-profit? Well, one of my favorite expressions, and I don't know where I picked it up from, but whoever told it to me was a genius, is that two things can be true at the same time, right? These aren't, you know, it's not like they're mutually exclusive or in conflict with each other. So in this case, I absolutely think private prisons are just are a pernicious evil. And I also ab- absolutely think that states that engage in mass incarceration are also, so two things true at the same time, is, is a, also a, a pernicious evil. I served my first few months before I was sent to a private prison, or I guess about, maybe about the first year to 18 months. I was initially sent to a minimum and I fought fires, right? Uh, fought wildfire, excuse me. And I made like a dollar, dollar twenty-five an hour, right, uh, with a crew of twenty guys, and they sent us all over the West. We were in you know, California, California, Oregon, Nevada. These prison fire crews, man, they're they're big bucks. They're really they they really haul in the the moolah, right, for the state because they're paying us a dollar twenty-five, but they're pimping you out, right? I'm I'm being pimped. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to other states and then, you know, the federal government's, you know, paying the uh, writing fat checks. You know, we're talking about thousands of dollars per head for each dude that's marching along, you know, with a chainsaw on one hand and a Pulaski axe in the other. So you got that. There was a few months where I did, so in the wintertime, we weren't fighting fires where the state of Idaho, the Idaho, Idaho Department of Corrections contracted with a, uh, you know, a private uh, produce, and I can't remember the name of but anyway, so you've got these uh, giant crews during harvest time of inmates going out and harvesting fruit, right? In my case, they sent me out because I fought fires and I was handy with a chainsaw. Uh, they sent me out to, you know, cut down or, you know, limb or prune their dead trees and things like that. Once again, you know, a dollar something or whatever. And so uh, sometimes I'd wander out and they'd send, you know, before they dropped me off in the field with my chainsaw. And I see once again, it's just hilarious to me. Uh, uh, unskilled immigrant labor laborers, you know, looking out who are also working the fields, going like I thought I was the you know lowest paid person here. Like, what's going on, right? The state of Idaho was talking about doing more of this, uh, opening more work centers and things like that. And the way it's the way it's sold is like, okay, well, cool, guys can go to work and and earn up to two dollars an hour, right? And we maybe potentially can get you know, thousands of Idaho incarcerated working, right? Well, wait a second, wait a second. I thought, are you going to keep these guys incarcerated forever? Or are they going to actually earn a livable wage? Or are we just going to give them up to $2 an hour, keep them incarcerated while the state gets, you know, whatever it is, $8 a head, $9 a head, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. States like Arizona, I know, you know, where there was that movie recently, the one with uh, uh, James Brolin, crap, what was it called? Uh, I read the book about it where that, that fire crew died, uh, you know, really sad thing. But I read another book that was written by an AP person about that same story. So a uh, different that talked about the underlying things that caused that. Cause one of the, uh, the underlying storylines was how they, they were struggling to get a, uh, you know, a municipal fire crew to protect their little town. Well, the reason for that is, is because it messes with the state's pimping. No, 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 no. We've got, we've got fire guys. You know, your city doesn't need a bunch of high pay, you know, high paid guys from the street. We've got inmates, right? We're going to have, we'll have them chainsaws and stuff like that. I mean, these guys are expendable. 
And plus they're cheap. So that you got the private prisons that are making money, but the, but the states are just as bad. Okay, so then some other stuff too. Like I think about you know commissary prices, which so you might be you know cleaning toilets or working in the kitchen for up to thirty cents an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can purchase top ramens at fifty cents a piece. Wait a second, don't top ramens cost like you know like again I've only been out a few days, but I'm pretty sure top ramen still are somewhere around the ten cent range. You know, right? you can go buy a pallet at Costco or something for like. 10 bucks there. Yeah. Shove it into your minivan next to your soccer kids. And these uh, uh, vendors that supply, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, commissary at, you know, where they raise the price of a Snickers bar, you know, you know, you're paying four or five bucks or whatever the thing is, right? These are lucrative contracts, right? So, so you got, so you got that hustle going. There's, there's a lot of hustles. Then there's the other one too. When the Idaho is really good at this one, which is where they offer what they call programming, right? where uh, you know people can be released on probation or whatever if they go through a program and then the and the federal month and the federal government you know throws uh however many dollars per head to throw these guys through you know programming and they and some of the stuff is done uh, by uh you know private individuals and things or private entities and all the manuals and all the other stuff like this just it becomes a whole economy in and of itself prison has become an economy it really is another expression i really like is that you would think if if every time we look into the river and we see people drowning, that one, we pull them out, and two, we might wander up the stream a little bit and find out why people are falling in the river to begin with. Mm-hmm. But uh, instead, it's like, wait a second, people in a river? You know, oh, revenue stream. Let's, let's just toss people in there. Maybe we can, you know, we can sell inner tubes or whatever, and then we can sell concessions at the end or whatever. Well, all people are drowning. Ah, it's fine. You know, where our profit, you know, we're making profit at the end of the day. So yeah. instead of really being concerned about what's happening to our quote unquote communities, uh, it's like in a state like Idaho where, you know, they're teeming, you know, they got people sleeping in between bunks. They're, you know, thousands, they are, they're sending guys out to private prison. They got, you know, why, why, why do we have so many people in prison? Let's figure that out. But yeah. no, it's, uh, you know, it's good for business. Yeah, that's that's such a good point that it's good for business and and there's so many different entities profiting. And just just to put a point or find fine points on that statement, you've mentioned you fought fires for for a season wildland fires, which is a dangerous job and requires incredible skills. Now right. with a felony on your record, are you allowed to fight fire or become a fireman in the state of Idaho? Uh I don't believe so. Once again, I'll defer to my, uh, you know, relative uh, fresh birth back into real world, right? I, I believe that I might be able to get a job like on what you might uh, what you'd call a mercenary crew, uh, where I could fight seasonally for a street crew. But I do not believe that the the state or even the federal government that I can fight fire for either one of those entities with a felony. And then there's another one that, that I heard. These are just, you know, rumors. So I, you might be able to confirm this for me. I think the much maligned Governor Newsom of California recently did this thing where he expunged the records of uh, inmates that had uh, a fire crew experience that fought fires for the state of California. If this is true, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I hope it is true because. Mm-hmm. It is one of those things that actually does pay pretty well. 
uh, on, you know, when, when you get out, I mean, obviously the, the state wouldn't pimp us out if, if there wasn't a fat check at the end of it. However, you're right. The catch 22 is okay, cool. I learned how to do this very dangerous thing that needs to be done. You know, we, we have wildfires growing in the West and other parts of the world. I think Australia, I've heard recently, you know, this, mm-hmm. uh, also struggling. So I think if you can go over there and make Boku bucks, right. But if you're a felon, Oh, wait a second. You know, sorry. You know, Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Remember that dollar twenty-five an hour you made, to, you know, and to learn all this cool stuff. Yeah. Well, too bad. So sad. So to answer your question, I don't know. I I, I don't believe so. I, I, yeah. I once again, I've I've heard through the rumor mill that I could go get a job fighting fire and make decent money for a private crew. And there's more and more of these private crews around. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as the, the the government jobs, which are higher paying and come with medical care and benefits and all that kind of stuff, yeah, if you're a felon, forget it, right? Yeah, and I ask the question because I I don't know the specific Idaho law, but in many states where they have these fire uh, incarcerated fire crews, you learn the skill, and afterwards you can't. And it's so interesting then that private fire crews will hire you, which are in and themselves symbols of further inequality. That if the state can't handle fires those with the resources to protect their houses can hire a private fire crew right it's funny how this stuff works and i mean there's a lot of politics behind the stuff because there's lots of money involved i mean you know we're talking you know literally billions of dollars and when it comes to these wildfires like sadly it's it is looked at as in some in some instances it's like oh well there's there's money to be had yeah absolutely and i want to ask one more question on sort of the the money, the movement, all of that. You were sentenced by the state of Idaho. You were incarcerated by the Idaho Department of Corrections. Yet you spent a bunch of time in a facility in South Texas. How? Yeah, three years. Why? Just, just under what three did years. that do? For me, it, it fractured an already a very traumatic and, and brutal thing that happened in my family, you know, my kids, right? Okay, fine. I was in Idaho. Well, now all of a sudden, I'm literally. Th- I, I'm not just in Texas. I'm. I was in uh, Eagle Pass, Texas. Basically, I was basically in Mexico, and 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 then this is not a place where it's of of easy easy or affordable for family members to get on a plane and and even and then you know they got a you know hotel rooms and this that and the other thing. I mean, this is it was it was awful. I mean, it just it, it, again, uh, it was bad enough me being in prison tons of obstacles just to to go see your dad when he's you know 10 miles away but yeah. uh, you know you move him a couple thousand and so the why i mean so the, the why for the state of idaho is that okay well we have too many people in prison okay cool but you look at the idaho statistics and what's hilarious about the, uh, the, you know, the numbers is that one, I mean, and I mentioned this earlier, you have, and once again, I don't have a clipboard in front of me with all this stuff. So, but I, I will say there's a large number of men who are, are not citizens. And I don't understand why they can't just be deported instead of getting monster sentences, you know, 10 year sentences for, you know, getting caught with whatever substance that they're, uh, they've, they've brought here. So anyway, they got, you know, monster sentences. You got those guys. Then you have the state of Idaho, somewhere around 30% of their prison population are parole violators, right? And these are not new felonies. It's not like a guy got out and three days later, you know, held up a liquor store with a pistol 
you know, he, uh, you know, failed to check in or, you know, and maybe he pissed hot for methamphetamine or something like that, or, or, you know, and I, uh, but then all of a sudden, again, these are violations. And so, okay, back to prison, you go. And, you know, some of these things can be really petty. So it's, you know, 30%, right? So 30% of the prison population. Well, you know, Idaho State's with its giant red red waving flag about being super conservative about how it spends money it's just funny because they spent like i said it's like 24 point something million dollars to send a thousand guys to a, a private prison right at the same time they're cutting they cut a couple million dollars between idaho uh, from idaho state university boise state uh, idaho already boasts some of the lowest paid teachers in the state right to ask your question of why why was I sent out of state? I don't, I don't know. Cause it was, it was pretty fucking expensive for the, mm-hmm. the taxpayers of the state. Right. Once again, you know, I hear, you know, rumors and there's no, you know, a lot of times it's stuff BS, but a lot of times it's not, but you have, you know, judges who are sentencing that, that own, uh, you know, stock or shares in these private prisons. I, I read a really more than decent article in Rolling Stone a couple of years back about geo was the one uh, was the uh, private prison. I still did, uh, spent time in a geo. And how they came into Arizona and, you know, conveniently the, the governor who was re- running for re-election there, you know, fat six-figure or some odd check for his re-election campaign. And, oh, it just so happened that Gio was awarded the new contract for, you know, it's just stuff like that. It's just kind of nefarious yeah. things, right? The cynic in me goes, okay, well, somehow, somewhere, this is profitable to somebody in the state of Idaho, but not to the taxpayers. So, yeah, the uh, the story we were told was that, you know, Hey guys, too bad, so sad. We're, you know, we're overpopulated. Oops. How did that happen? And, and once again, instead of taking a hard look at like your population going, okay, well, right away, we could probably deport a bunch of guys that have done, you know, five to seven years that are, aren't even citizens of the U S let's get them out of there. It'll cost a $500 book, you know, uh, a bus ticket or whatever it is, as opposed to the $30,000 or 35, 39, whatever it is per head per person per year. Right. And then, okay, then let's look at some of these parole violators. How about every guy that's, you know, minimum security, nonviolent, who's in because they uh, absconded. They didn't check in with their parole officer or, you know, on a, just whatever thing. So you can't tell me you can't whittle uh, a thousand guys out of the prison population so you don't have to send all these men out of state. And it has a, it has a deleterious effect. Those, the hmm. private, private prisons are, are, are teeming, you know, just lousy. With, with drugs, drugs and violence, right? You know, I thought we're, we're trying to stop that crap, but it's the hallmark of what private prison is. I mean, they, these guys are making billions. And when I say billions, I mean billions. Yeah, yep. Anybody can look it up. And then, and it's just, it's just good for business. They're not rehabilitating anybody. They're just, you know, you come in the front door. Okay. Here's your syringe. Here's your bag of dope. Go, there's your overcrowded cell. Have a nice day. Leave us a good Google review when you're out. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's a great answer. I mean, it's it's terrible to to see what motivates these and then what it does to people with families and communities in the states in which they were incarcerated. And we can this this conversation has been so interesting and so generative, and we can continue for a while, but we're we're running low on time. So I want to ask one final question. Hopefully, end on a on a more optimistic note with this question I asked to everyone sitting in your seat. Jared, what gives you hope today? Man, that's a fantastic question. 
And, uh, and before I go, I just want to mention to you, you know, we had kind of a shotgun blast of, of topics today. And then any one of these is, you know, another another podcast in and of itself. So anyway, thanks for having me. And I think of something that we want to explore down the road. I'd love to be back. But what gives what gives me hope, right? I'll defer back to the, you know, the, the bio you, you, you read at the beginning about my six amazing children. This past weekend, I got to uh, spend it with uh, my daughter who just turned 15. I built her a bookcase because <laughs> I'm poor. The this, this look on her face uh, from just building her a bookcase, right? You know, and, and I've been absent for their li- from their lives, and they went through a lot, of, you know, and and all the crap that I went through in a in a private prison, and you know, just doing five years of, you know, it was awful. But I, you know, my poor poor kids, right? I would say what gives me hope is is my is my children. And, and my children's friends, this next generation, I think that there's a leveling up of consciousness. I see more young people. So my 15-year-old, she starts you know, kind of spouting out about how she wants to be an attorney. And, and she's talking about criminal justice stuff and uh, how fascinated she is that uh, Kim Kardashian. And I'm like, Kim Kardashian? What? You know, the, you know she's, uh, she's out there trying to uh, stump for you know, uh, criminal justice reform and that sort of thing. This is a 15-year-old. When I was 15, <laughs> my mind was on all kinds of other crap, right? Man, so so I thought, okay, maybe it's just my 15-year-old. But, you know, my, just talking to my other kids, too, they're so aware of their world, much more aware than I was. And, and I'm not sure maybe it's the Internet that's doing that. But I do think that there is a, a leveling up of consciousness. I think more and more our youth go, hey, we look around at our resources, these beautiful lands. We look at the people next to us and they go, you know, they're much more compassionate, open, forgiving, thoughtful. And that's what we need. Right. And so I see that in my six kids and I go, you know what? We're going to be all right. Because as much as prison time will harden a man's heart, when you see some true thoughtfulness and compassion from the, the youth of this world, I go, you know what? Like, we might be all right because uh, they're going to do it better than dad did it, right? Anyone who's a father or a parent, uh, that's what they want. They want they want better for their kids, and I I see that happen, and that gives me hope. Uh, it really does. I love that. That's that's great. That gives me hope, too. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jared. This was so interesting, and you're right. We could go on for hours about so many of these topics, so we'll definitely talk again, and I look forward to uh, reading your book when it comes out. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a shout when uh, when I'm done with that. Hopefully, uh, I gotta learn how to use a computer again. The first few hundred pages I did handwritten and on an old school typewriter, so <laughs> I gotta decipher <laughs> it and edit it all and slap it all together. But I, I'm excited about it too because uh, I've got some fun uh, fun anecdotes and stories and and observations that I I think people will uh, well if, if not be entertained, they'll be offended. Which those two things uh, once again, you know. Two things can be true at the same time. You can be offended and entertained at the same time. So that's uh, that's my aim. We'll see if uh, we'll see how how well the book turns out. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and we we'll, we will talk soon. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, engage with us on Twitter, and we will see you for our next episode.